Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. For the 200th time, which is just ridiculous. But it is a very special episode. My guest this week is Naomi Snickus, a comedian, actor, and writer you may know from Mr. D, The Steps, Two for One, and Happily Ever After, or any number of live comedy shows many of which she performs with her husband, Matt Barham. She's also a podcaster. The Barham and Snickers podcast, where she and Matt welcome a guest for an interview and an improv session, is a lot of fun, and her solo show, Firecracker Department, offers really engaging, insightful conversations with women working in the entertainment industry. I'm a fan. Naomi picked The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, Judd Apatow's incredible deep dive into the life of his friend and mentor, the stand-up, the actor, the writer, the producer and the innovator who created some incredible television and left behind some remarkable journals before his untimely death in 2016. Built out of a mixture of archival footage and present-day interviews with people who knew and loved Chandling, it's a four-and-a-quarter-hour-long memorial to a complex and clearly difficult human being, and it led Naomi and myself to a conversation that's as much about our own lives and the performance and understanding of comedy as it is about the film under discussion. This is someone else's movie, and this is us as well. I mean, that Gary Stanley movie, it was just, it was so impactful because I think it just spoke to me about um, creativity and authenticity and that he was kind of venturing into this whole other world. Because we all do, you know, we do comedy and then seeing that he was pursuing this deeper level of authenticity was really inspiring. It was both inspiring and like depressing because it was like oh my god I want to create I want to do so much and then there was part of it that was like oh my god I've I've just wasted so much time with not doing that kind of work yeah I I, I think he also made himself crazy doing it so well that's it right the the idea of mindfulness to the point of losing your mindfulness in mindfulness I don't know how to describe it but the the feedback loop that he creates that we see him creating and trying to get out of over and over again is where you're so aware of who you are and what you're trying to accomplish that you can't accomplish it because you keep wondering how you're going to accomplish it. Yeah, yeah, there's a disconnect, right? With The more I think, the less mm, pro- pro- productive I am in, in the world of comedy. Sure, yeah. And I think the job is for comedians to get out of your head so you're not sort of watching over yourself going, oh, that makes you look stupid or that makes you have a double chin. Like, you yeah. don't want to do that. You want to just do comedy. Yeah, I'm... I have to admit, I, di- I missed it the first time around. I didn't see it when it when it aired because it was four hours long and four and a half. And I was we were prepping for hot dogs, and so yeah. you know, like there's no time. And I, I I caught up to it after TIFF. It was my decompression movie. Yeah, and it was great. Yeah, I, I mean, I really I I wasn't expecting to be bored, but the idea of a four and a half hour deep dive into somebody coming out of watching, I don't know, 60-odd films. Yeah, right. It's the last thing you want to yeah, do. More, yeah, more, more. <laughs> but it's... I never met Shandling, uh, which kind of breaks my heart now, yeah. in retrospect, because I think we would have had a really interesting conversation no matter what mood he was in yeah. or what he was doing. He was always someone who I was in awe of. I wrote about... Back in the 90s, I wrote about Larry Sh- Larry Sanders. I didn't get to write about It's Gary Shandling's Show, but I did write about Larry Sanders a couple of times, and it was just the most... It's funny, people 
don't remember the impact that it had. Like, we're old enough to have been there right. and, and caught it, but now there's a new generation that just, well, everybody's doing that. It's like, yeah, because of this. Yeah, he was the first. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's funny when you see comedians like that, that people have forgotten, like like Jacques Tati. Sure. Like that kind of stuff. Where we were just talking about that the other day, and he's like one of my favorites, but his physical humor w- taught a lot of people that do physical humor now and they don't even know it started with him yeah yeah i maybe 10 years ago someone was asking what he did that was so influential and i said you know the mr heavyfoot sketches on kids in the hall that's what that is it's like no i thought that was it was um dave foley and, yeah and sorry he, kevin mcdonald came up with the parody of of it's basically it's a parody of Hulot and oh i didn't know that it's exaggerated but it's you know it's silent and oh, I have to go silent back and misfortune watch that. it's a yeah. direct tribute yeah. And yeah, and if you don't know the history of it, and again, there's a generation now that thinks Kids in the Hall created comedy, yeah, right. which I mean, perfected probably, but it's it's fascinating to see everything come in waves and realize the debts that you owe to other things and the debts that culture owes. And this one, I mean, what is it, thirty five years of comedy all cycling through all yeah. the way back to the Tonight Show? Yeah, but you would hope that people reflect back. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I think you would. That, like, you would hope. I don't think that they always... Like, I think there's some comedians, and maybe I've done it too, where I'm like, I invented that. You know, and I met, <laughs> I've met comedians that don't know who Carol Burnett is, and you kind of go, no, you gotta... Yeah. You gotta know where we're coming from. Yeah. Oh, my God. And she pops up, and that was the other thing that really just struck me watching it, is how many of those people are, are retired or gone completely. Yeah. And Carrie Fisher shows up, and there's the clip of Gilda Radner, which... Oh, on, yeah. on It's Gary Shandling's show, which I had just re-encountered in Love Gilda, the documentary, uh, at Hot Docs, mm-hmm. where they, they actually dwell on it, because that was the comeback. That was the first time she'd been on screen. Is that in, right? I think three years. Wow. And it's, yeah, it's heartbreaking and funny, and, and she looks good, and, and yeah. everybody's comfortable, and they're clearly happy to gather on screen. And, you know, where have you been? I had cancer. Where have you been? And yeah. it's I just, did not have cancer. It's <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's this this mournfulness to it now simply because so much of that generation is gone mm-hmm. and, and that Shanling himself um, when when I've said this a number of times I'm sure on the podcast before when Bowie died I couldn't I couldn't be sad about it for very long because the songs won't let you like the music right. is too joyous right um, and it was the same with Prince and, and with Shanling watching this documentary it was it really did do that thing that everybody says a documentary is supposed to do which is resurrect him and have Mm -hmm. him there in the room with you Mm -hmm. um and it was just yeah the lessons that he's he is teaching us in the film thanks to the editing and the the journals and everything else are amazing but it was just it was so nice to see him again yeah and, and see him at his peak and yeah. Uh, there's stuff I hadn't seen before, like the the Tonight Show appearances. And... Yeah, yeah, just to see his arc and Judd Apatow did such a great job. Yeah, you know, clearly revealing it to everybody. Yeah, he knows the subject. Obviously, they were friends for 25 years. Yeah, but, but the, the the respect that's paid to the other people that Shanling mentored yeah. as well, I think, is really generous of of Apatow and really nice. Yeah, there's a real admiration for him and. Um... There's a weight to it, too, though, right? There's, like, this... It's funny when, like, comedy's such serious business, right? Sure. And you hear um, Bob Saget talking about it. And, you know, there's a weight to where their friendship went, too. And it's not all just 
you know, shits yeah. and giggles. No, it's, I mean, not, uh, I don't think with, with Shandling it ever was. This is a guy who... But he started, know, like, he, if you see before he does the, before the big lawsuit stuff, there was a lightness to him that that stopped being there. And we all, sure, I mean, yeah. if you look back on all of our lives, there's probably something that we can all pinpoint and go, that's where I got heavy. Yeah. You know, and whether or not it lasted for a year, or maybe it lasted throughout your life after that. But there's, like, life changes you. And you can choose to wallow in it or or stay there or you can get out of it or maybe you can't choose sometimes you have to just accept that's the person you are now yeah i mean i certainly felt that way after the first major death i experienced yeah there's the person you were and the person you are afterwards yeah yeah and you can reconcile eventually those two and figure out where the medium is but then something else happens and you i no one explained to me that adulthood was going to be this constantly shifting turntable of of perspectives yeah i i I get the idea of growing more mature as you grow older and ideally learning more about yourself ideally yeah i mean the idea that you're doing it while people are coming at you with machetes emotionally all the time it's the worst video game ever adulthood Ugh, it's miserable the boss level never comes no (laughs) you never get high score yeah all the individual challenges sucks mushrooms don't do the things they're supposed to do right nothing eat as many as you want along the way yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, but he had like a level of, um, I don't know, that drive that, mm-hmm. you know, that we remember from our 20s where we were like, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm just, nothing's going to stop me. Yeah. And he did do what, I mean, that's, that's the admirable thing and the awful thing about him too is that he's uncompromising as a creator. Mm-hmm. He only could do the thing he wanted to do. Uh, which you see in when they're shooting the Mike Nichols movie, which, which Shandling wrote yeah. for himself, how disastrously wrong that goes simply because their their two approaches are so incompatible yeah that must have been so awful yeah I mean I saw it in theaters did you it was a dead thing yeah you couldn't save it worse than Ishtar I like Ishtar (laughs) I gotta say the songs alone Um, but yeah no I remember seeing it with it was a a preview audience so it was sold out it was packed at the the old York Theater Uh, big screen you know big audience yeah dead just just not a laugh. I think there's one laugh early on. Um, but then who do you blame for that? Do you blame, like, producer, ac- actor? Like, you go, well, it's not Gary Shandling's fault. He's really funny. So not, something yeah. along the way, the chef mixed salt instead of sugar. Yeah, it is weird. I, I truly believe no one ever sets out to make a bad movie. But I do think that sometimes... <laughs> think so. Can you imagine? Well, imagine Springtime for Hitler right? all yeah. over again. Yeah. But I think sometimes they give up. Yeah, and this felt like a movie that just they wasn't, gave up. Yeah, that that, and and based on what they say, you know, in the in the footage that we see, where uh, Shanley's process required him to do multiple takes, and Nichols wanted it on the first or second. I think they were both they made each other miserable without meaning to, and then you can sort of feel the hand come off the tiller, and it just yeah, it just flies away on its own. Why is that though? Is it just like not being adjustable? People not being able to it adjust. Like it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like Nichols was at a point in his career where he didn't want to do ten takes to find the scene. Right. Uh, and this is a guy who came from theater, who presumably had found it before they shot it, and all that stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. He's casting people who can deliver, and it was just a just a bad uh, a bad creative pairing. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The salt instead of sugar. Yeah. Bad chemistry. Um, but having seen the film and having no interest in ever revisiting it, right. oh no, it was bad. Yeah. It was just really, really bad. And it was it was a script that was built along the same kind of banalities that Larry Sanders was and Gary Sand uh, Gary. Uh, so I'm going to screw this up over and over again. 
I know. It's, 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 it's show. Not, you're not the only one. It's yeah. confusing. Those, but the two sitcoms that, that Shanling made yeah. are also, you know, one is, as, as Apatow points out, it's The Office Before the Office. It's a workplace sitcom Absolutely. that happens to be set in show business. And then it's Gary Shanling's show is this amazing funhouse mirror on the concept of the sitcom that's yeah. also a movie about, a show about a guy just being normal in Los Angeles. This the the film. What planet are you from? Is about an alien who fumbles through the banalities that humans deal with every day. Right. And they just register as banal because the perspective isn't there. Right. There's nobody like. There's not a bunch of aliens sitting in the audience going, "This is you." Yeah. This is so you. Yeah. It felt weirdly sour. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that it's all about how Annette Bening doesn't want to have sex until she gets married, which is like a big deal in the film where you're watching it now. It's like, well, that's kind of rapey now. That is a Right, that, right, right. You know, even Well, if, look, everything's changed, right? Sure. You can't... We were, we were just watching Midsummer Night's Dream in Hyde yeah. Park. Problematic. And, <laughs> right, because he puts, like, uh, he roofies, Puck roofies yeah. the, the lovers. Everybody, right? Yeah, he much. just goes around, he's a drug dealer. It's not It's <clears throat> not great. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's weird that... I mean, I guess I'm not surprised that Nichols would go for it because some of his comedies were very much rooted in the 50s kind of mentality. Yeah. But I'm surprised that Shandling couldn't find a way to make that commentary that he clearly makes on everything else he's doing. Yeah. Uh, in the same way, in that the alien prem- the, like the premise is that an alien is here to propagate and perpetuate a species and that requires a human woman. And then he becomes sexually frustrated. It's just, just like weird. Yeah. I know. And I'm such... like. Matt and I have uh, like the Barrowman Sneakus duo that we do, which is a lot of like Bear, um, Nichols and May stuff. Like mm-hmm. I love Nichols and May, so to have that product result from somebody like Mike Nichols is quite shocking. Yeah, it's weird when I guess it's just part of the whole larger framework of people aging out of relevance and not keeping up with the changing mores of the times, which we're know. seeing over and over again. I don't know. I mean, mm. or is it people going, you know, what'll just be fun. Let's just do this stupid little movie about the, and then they get screwed because it has to be more than just something that's going to be fun. Yeah. Right? Like, Maybe. that's where he goes back to, like, it has to have some authenticity. It has to have some level of investment to it. If you do something that's just going to be for shits and giggles, you're probably just going to get shits and giggles out of it. Maybe not the giggles. Right. <laughs> yeah. You can be very successful doing that stuff. Yeah, but, sure. But I, mean, I bet, like, you know, folks that are making you know, sitcom-y, shtick comedy kind of thing, and not to discount that. It, there's validity, validity in it, but it's that's their that's their goal, right? right? That's their goal. They're pursuing that as opposed to doing something like, hey, let's make something really trite and seek depth. Yeah, and that's the stuff that I'm drawn to over and over again, things that, you know, unpack or, or examine or interrogate whatever the format is, which is why Larry yeah. Sanders was so relevant. Oh, my God. And it was like Mr. Show before Mr. Show. Yeah. Yeah. Or was it during? Because I already... No, because I already knew Odenkirk. So they probably happened around the same time. Or did I know Odenkirk from... No, I knew Odenkirk from Ben Stiller. From yeah. From Ben Stiller Show. Right. Because he poached... Uh, right. Uh, Apatow, Odenkirk, and Garofalo. Right, right, right. Um, and Stiller and, and I think Andy Dick also. That was a... Again, that was a, a show the world wasn't ready for. Yeah. Um, but Larry Sanders landed at exactly the right moment. Yeah, the post... Uh, post or present OJ reality where celebrity was sort of bending it on itself anyway and people yeah. were starting to question the motivations of why you would do these things and who yeah, it's in the movie right? the only people worse than those who want to be on TV every night are those who have to be or no the only thing worse than oh, yeah, being like on TV is wanting to be 
Every yeah. Day. Yeah. There's something similar to like the only thing worse than climbing up the ladder is being at the top and trying to stay there. Yeah. Right. And he he would he was unhappy doing like the same show every night doing the tonight show. Mm-hmm. And left to do to focus himself fully on it's Gary Sand. On, uh, I know. I know. There. We're gonna. I just, will, I'm gonna cut. It's so a drinking much game. Out of this <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's his dissatisfaction with his own work forced him to do better. Yeah. Without really alienating his coworkers, which seems nice. Um, he alienated his friends more often than not. It seems. Yeah. Over his own. Yeah, you know, I don't know actually. I can't. Stuff. I mean, I think there's a love. It's a love letter, right, from Joe Daffodil that movie. So you're not really going to see the darkness. That's true. But and you I don't... couldn't really tell. Could you tell if like there's um, animosity in the in the uh, crew cast? I mean, Linda Doucette doesn't even bear him ill will, right? Like she, I don't know. She, she seems like she's back on a, in a good place when she's so. talking to Apatel, though that is after Shandling's death, so that's probably the closure she doesn't get from him. Yeah. But like when they have the interview when they're sitting next to each other, yeah. there is a little bit of... Oh, I no, mean, that's God, tense. Damn it, that, but can't then, imagine. Yeah, and then to cut from that to her alone is just so devastating and simple. Yeah. And and that's... like I always come back to Apatow as a filmmaker. People knock his movies for being too long and too self-indulgent, but he's dealing with the same things that Chandling is just in his own way. I yeah. Mean, funny people, I think, would be perfect at 90 minutes if it had stopped when the doctor pronounces Sandler cured and says, now what do you think of my accent? That's the laugh line you end on. Right. But then it goes on for another hour and becomes about what do you do after your life isn't dead? Like, what do you do when you're not going to die? And that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll defend This is 40 you loved it. a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it's definitely a guy's perspective on it. Right. You know, Leslie Mann does not get that much screen time. No, no. Uh, but what Paul Rudd's character is going through is really interesting. And Rudd is, you know, again, you can't, you can't not watch Paul Rudd be oh my God. on screen. He's just so great at What's that? that? We just watched the movie. Oh, no, it's Paul Rudd movie. And it's, um, they're all in a hippie. Uh, oh, Wanderlust. What did you think of that? I loved that. I loved it. Yeah. That, I, I mean. I again. thought it was so fun. Yeah. It's the kind of movie that I was like, oh, that just looks like a lark to make. Yeah. But also but interesting. But it's about something. Like, it is right? about like something. Is about, there you go. It's about dissatisfaction and the right. idea that there's a utopia. I mean, it's, again, it's it's first world problem stuff. It's the grass is always greener. It's the most basic human, um, it's not even discontent. It's just restlessness. Yeah. It's called wonderless. Yeah. But it, that's what it's about. And that delivers, it delivers an essay. It, it actually does go into that stuff. Yeah. Um, Where the aliens just wanting to have sex, it just feels like that's not enough of a premise. No. Well, it, it certainly wasn't. <laughs> and, like, producers must have been like, I mean, it's not a premise, but we got... We had Gary Shandling. Gary Shandling. We got Mike Nichol. It's, it's going to be fine. Get there on the day. Yeah, right. Yeah. We'll fix it in post. Yeah, that's not a thing. Yeah. Um, the, the Yeah, I'm just... I'm trying to pick a, a point to talk about in the film, but there's just so much so swirling much. around. As so, you said, four and a half hours, right? Yeah. And an entire life. You know, it, it opens with the defining tragedy that becomes the thesis of his entire life, that his his older brother died and his parents somehow tried, in trying to protect him from that pain, managed to make it worse. They, he wasn't told that the brother had died. He didn't go to the funeral. Yeah, It's just... I find it interesting, though, for somebody who is as into self-reflection as he seems to be, that there was never that, I gotta dig deep and figure out this whole brother thing. Mm. Do you know? Like, yeah. he he practiced meditation, like, you know, I, I had, I mean, this isn't funny and you can cut this out, no, but I had, I had cancer like eight, 10 years ago, 
And um, I remember going, I got to figure this out. If otherwise it's going to keep revisiting. And it just did that for his whole life. He never, he never dealt. Yeah. How did you deal with it? Um, or how does one? Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I, had, I always belittle it because I didn't have to do, it was melanoma and I had to do like, it, it wasn't as invasive as some people's cancers. So sure. I'm always like, I had like, like, I didn't get supersized cancer. I got medium cancer. <laughs> but, uh. Still cancer. How did I deal with it? I, I, um. I mean, life kind of just fell apart. I guess I, I, I read a lot, and I went to therapy, and I figured out how it impacted me, and I um, I started building, like, a tool belt of how to get through stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. before then, I didn't I hadn't really tapped into anything like that. I no. don't know. That, I think that... I mean, I knew I got a dog. <laughs> I knew that the dog and comedy would save me. Okay. So I was at Second City at the time, and I knew that was a really big pull, pull yeah. to get, getting Christ. better. I had a cancer scare 15 years ago, and that changed my life. Yeah, did it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it collapsed my timeline. It accelerated a few things. Yeah. Basically, it's, it's, it was so not anything that I am... Yeah. I, I feel like I shouldn't even be bringing it up to... Like, only no, but because it's not you're talking your about your own right? changes. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, it's not the same as actually having it and getting. Well, look, out. we're belittling an impact, right? So yes, yeah, why belittle? Like you were impacted, I was impacted. Somebody who had to go through chemotherapy and lose like a breast was impacted, and let's just yeah, you can only deal with what you're dealing with. Yeah, like you were impacted from the idea of it, and it changed your chemistry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I definitely uh, started insisting that Kate marry me. Right around that See, time. See, there like, you go. I have no idea. I tomorrow's never promised and all that horseshit. But yeah, okay, I get it now. Yeah, let's let's be happier. Let's yeah. keep going. Let's make choices that yeah. are for the future. Yeah. It was it was incredibly um, unsettling is the wrong word, but it completely like there was no such thing as equilibrium for those few days. Yeah. Uh, and you don't want to tell people and you don't want to do anything. Like, I get the whole idea of retreating into yourself and, and you know, like pulling the dirt over your head so no one can bother you and while you're going through it. But it turned out to be like, less than nothing mm-hmm. for me. And I was incredibly lucky. Uh, and just decided that, you know, let's not, let's not pretend that I didn't think about that yeah. stuff. And let's not pretend that that wasn't there for those days. Well, there you go. Like, that kind of goes back to your self-awareness. Right, mm. so you could have just gone, meh. Yeah. So anyway, this is my girlfriend Kate. Another year with this girlfriend Kate, and you chose to let it affect you, and you chose to let yourself examine it. So it surprises me that he didn't, or that he yeah. did in a way that was very private, because everybody talked about he he never mentioned his brother. Yeah, and maybe that's part of it too, is that you were raised at a certain point in time that you don't do that you simply like it's unseemly and from what we know of his relationship with his mother who uh, is described as uh, profoundly narcissistic and Mm self-absorbed self-involved to the point where everything had to be about her I can imagine him never wanting to open up around her because she would just turn it into her thing yeah well you saw when they started talking about it and she was telling her husband like let's not why we don't talk about that yeah 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 you but know, he writes. He, I mean, again, who knows what Judd Apatow left in the diaries? Right? Yeah, and certainly the choice to bring in that letter, the letter he did write to Barry at some point, uh, at the end, that's an editorial decision. You could certainly have woven it through, but you know, he's a storyteller, and Apatow's going to hold it back for the best impact. Yeah. But I would, yeah, I would love to know how that 
played into um, the editing of the film, knowing these things going in, presumably, mm-hmm. having the access to the journals. Um, and and have you read Apatow's book of interviews? I just Skin bought it. Yeah. Skin in the Head? Yeah. I just bought it two days ago. So. Oh, that's great. I was yeah. going to send you home with it if you hadn't. Oh, that's uh, lovely. Because it's, it's fantastically good. And it's the it's the conversations that, you know, I would have loved to have with all of these people. He was, he was a really good interviewer. Yeah. Uh, which... As a child. Like yeah, he which was, galls me. Yeah. I wasn't that good at 16. Um, no. And talking to people. I still don't... I haven't figured it out. I'm, I mean, even now, I'm just I'm figuring things out. Yeah. He's, he's on top of it, though. Yeah. And they're great conversations, and they're genuinely illuminating. I, I have never... I, and, and that clearly carries through into the documentary. I have never seen Sasha Baron Cohen as himself, ever. I know. Uh, which but is you the You can say that thing. about all the guys he interviewed. Yeah. Right, I mean, Sarah Silverman, like everybody just, just lays it out like it is. Oh yeah, no, they're talking to a friend, right? They're, yeah, they're dropping exactly. Any pretense, but exactly. I've never seen Sasha Baron Cohen give an interview. Period, as himself. Yeah. He's always in character. Yeah. He always insists on playing it as Borat or as right. You know, the dictator from the dictator and all that stuff. I didn't. I don't think I knew what his own accent sounded like right. until I saw this. Yeah. Um, and that's amazing, especially since I just. We've just gone through his latest television series. Have which, you? Yeah. I haven't seen that yet. Um, I'll have to watch it. I'm, I'm curious. Though. Yeah, it's highly problematic. Some of the stuff is great that he's managing to get, but he's managing to get Republicans to confess to things that we already know they'll do. Like, that's the thing. There's right. no shock value anymore. Right, right. Getting, Whereas he, when he first started, like, yeah, it was amazing. It was incredible to see what people would say and what they would reveal. There's a scene where there's the, uh, he interviewed Bernie Sanders in the first episode, and Sanders figures it out really quickly, and they just cut away, and there's no right. there's no payoff to it. It's just this he plays a, his character is a right-wing um, YouTube journalist, I think, um, who's, it's a it's a clever idea. He, yeah. he's, he thinks, he's blaming Obamacare for being sick, because before Obamacare, he didn't go to a doctor, and he was fine. And then Obamacare came in, and I went right. to a doctor, and I found that I got three things wrong with me. And that's clever, but Sanders just doesn't do doesn't anything, because he, he's clearly in the room with an insane person, right. and he doesn't want to get hurt. Yeah. And that's the other thing that, that I that I find so odd about the, the Sasha Baron Cohen project now, is that how do you not see that this person in the room with you is ridiculously, ludicrously made up? Because they're, they're basically caricatures of human faces at this point. Right. And then also, why would anyone sign that release? Yeah. I mean, I think they, yeah. they trick them. They use different releases, get them to sign them beforehand. But the whole thing is just so weirdly contrived at this yeah. point. Yeah, just, I don't know. Yeah. And maybe it's just that reality is weird enough already that you can accept or all these things. People are so uncomfortable. They're like, why is this man like, wearing so much makeup? Mm-hmm. And they just let it go. Yeah, it's obviously a fake nose. Let it go. Yeah. I don't know. I suppose in LA you're gonna see people like that. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but but Apatow gets truth out of him. Yeah. And I mean, I, I also think it's really telling that Ricky Gervais does not show up in the present day interview segments. Yeah, that was a weird segment when he came in. Yeah. What did you think of that? I found it absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I have I've met Gervais, and he is. I met him in 2008 or nine when Ghost Town came to town. Okay. And so this wouldn't have been that much further away from it. And he was very... He has a persona, which has you know, now, 10 years later, has calcified into the thing that it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get the sense that he is both incredibly intimidated by Shanling because he admires yeah. him. Yeah. And also that he's trying to package it into something that it won't be. And right. that, that Shanling will not have. And yeah, that's the like that's the glimpse of the dark, angry Gary that you hear yeah. about over and over again. Yeah. And it was I found it absolutely riveting. Yeah, it was interesting. 
Yeah, my Matt was talking about how like Gary Shanley had like walked into something that he wasn't prepared for. But that's also comedy. Like mm. that is part of our game, right? To yeah. see what you can see if you can throw people off their game. And that's it. the idea that he is not willing to roll with it for a second yeah. is really interesting yeah. to me. Because this is a guy who had cultivated and that's the house that he built piece by piece right. to stall a marriage and, and avoid having a relationship with someone which psychologically that's so loaded and so fascinating yeah and there's always something wrong with the house like he's always fixing it up and things like that yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of wild have you always done comedy me yeah like have you always been into comedy Is oh yeah been... hugely so I, I just i find it absolutely fascinating yeah and the the explosion of i guess podcasts have really helped too yeah. because you can just podcast or the new comedy album you can just listen to paul f Tompkins and scott ackerman fart around for an hour on comedy bang bang yeah. every week if you want to um yeah i've a huge huge comedy nerd i've uh i i've i've wrestled with it over and over again because i love it and i'm i'm told i'm funny <laughs> which i don't believe because that's not where my ego goes uh right. i mean i can get laughs and and i i found that the like the single greatest thing I've done in the last 10 years is host more movie screenings and Q&As and things because that laugh is the thing that you chase the for the rest of your life oh my god yeah um, and I did I I, uh, I did it on stage I was the special guest um, at Second City the improv guest a couple of years ago and it was a blast yeah, it was cool. really fun like you did the improv set yeah I did the fun. full I did sketches I didn't do the games we, we did like characters and stuff oh great and, yeah it was really fun and um and the best the best way I can describe it is that I am having the best time and waiting to come out and, and behind the, the thing. And I realize instantly that there is no way I'm going to win this room over because when they said, you know, we have a very special guest tonight and the people on the other side of the curtain were going, it's Drake, it's Drake. Oh, like, no. No, it is not. No. Whatever happens. I'm not going to get these people back. <laughs> but I got a couple of laughs and it was really fun. That's very funny. It was, yeah. I'm not Drake. I am not and, and never will be. Yeah, it's pronounced Drac. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that, I feel like anybody can be funny. It's a, it's a muscle. Mm. You know, like at Second City, you do it six nights a week and you quickly lose any kind of uh, preciousness about comedy. So if you were doing like that, yeah. then you'd have the confidence in your comedy too, which is also something but if you're doing if you're doing sketch you're, like you're funny you've got some funny chops I tried to for I sure. mean who knows I, I'm sure I couldn't make a living at it at, at this point I'm 50 there's no way I'm gonna get turned around say never back you just can't you just don't know if you really wanted it yeah start doing stand up and Ugh, no. would you ever do stand up mm, probably not it looks so lonely I, I worry that well yeah I mean you, <laughs> you worry I've done a couple of storytelling events okay and you feel the ebb and flow and it's just like I think I know myself well enough that if I lose the room, I'm not going to get them back. Really? Like, it just. I bet you develop a muscle. I. Maybe and like that's I'm it. telling you, I'm not I know you better in. than you know yourself. <laughs> I bet you develop a muscle that would teach you how to recover quickly. I think this is my, like this is my perfect um, solution. Yeah. Podcasting conversations. I'm. I'm. You know. I'm a really good interviewer. That I know over 30 years that I can get people to talk about almost anything. Uh, and it's taken that's the muscle like that's yeah. the muscle I built up what's your secret to getting people to tell them tell you anything um, I I don't know really yeah. I know what I I know my tics yeah uh, which is that I'm I'm friendly I'm not hostile I'm not formal uh, very hostile I, never, I have to say I, I disagree but I've seen people come in and like set boundaries in the interview from the journalist side which yeah. is 
Never a good idea. Yeah. And you don't want to shtick it up. You don't want to be like, hey, you know, let's talk about this crazy thing I heard you, like the pre-interview stuff. Uh, I've seen people do that. Um, Rob Salem uh, at the Star back in the late 80s and early 90s was my basically my mentor. I was writing for him. He was my editor at the Home Video Magazine. And I we went to a couple of press events together that we both were invited to. And I would just sort of watch him take the lead in interviewing people. And I, um, you know, he... He would just start talking. Yeah. And I realized nobody else does that. Like, nobody else yeah. just wants to have a conversation for however many minutes. You yeah. can't, I mean, if it's a TV junket, you've got five minutes, you can't. But if you're in a room with somebody for 10 to 15 to an hour, you can actually... Get somewhere. Yeah. yeah. You can go to places they maybe don't want to go. And, and the, this show uh, has been amazing for me that way because everyone comes in with something they want to share mm-hmm. because the device the, the premise of the podcast is that you will want to talk about the thing that we're talking about and you're not selling it you just want yeah. to talk about it and that works I think I've lost track but I'm coming up to 200 episodes wow well three and a half years now yeah wow. uh, this, that's incredible yeah we just dropped episode 192 we being me and the computer yeah <laughs> um, it's a lonely game yeah <laughs> but this I mean I started this because uh, I was doing fewer interviews just as, as a matter of course. Uh, and this was a way to have conversations with people that would take me out of just sitting at home and writing by myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now I'll, that's the dragon that I'm chasing. I just right. have more talk, more conversations, more interactions. But it it starts from a place of I want to share something. Yeah. And, I wanna, and I'm being here receiving it because that will spark conversation. And invariably, it always gets back to the person. Yeah. Like the guest will talk about his or her own work, inevitably. Uh, we already have, and life, and stuff. And I don't know where it's going to go, so why would I presume, right. sitting down, that I'm going to have a list of questions? You know, you can be Brian Linehan, and yeah. who, who Which shows up. Which is a whole other style. I love yeah. it. Yeah. And it's so great to see him make Shandling uncomfortable by being... Oh, so great. By being stiff and prepared. Yeah. Uh, and, and not open to any of the things that Shandling would be open to it's in another true. conversation. Yeah. I mean, you're also choosing, you're like talking about a movie that I've chosen that mm-hmm. I care about as opposed to like you saying, I want you to come in and talk about, I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, your latest project, the like thing poetry. that you did. We could talk about poetry. That's no, a, like I, I'm that's a great movies. movie. I'm Is looking it? at it. Yeah. That's, uh, in fact, that's, uh, that's Lee Chang Dong's last film before burning. It's been eight years since he's made another movie. And he was just. Here. You may know more about movies than I do. It's kind, just, of, kind I, of the gig. It kind of is the yeah. gig. I'm just like looking at these movie titles. I'm like, I don't recognize a lot of them. No, they're all pretty good. Yeah. I mean, most of them are. There's a couple that are up there just because I can't believe that they exist, and I wanted to keep the yeah. commentary track. Now, when or Blu-ray came along, we we're like, oh boy, we yeah. gotta start again. Uh, I mean, well, we're doing. I'm living through it now with 4K, uh, but. I have, you know, the awful advantage of having covered home video for 25 years, so most of this, well, at this point, I think half and half, but all the DVDs, they all came, they were right. review copies, so they just, right. that was easy. But now you're getting screeners in, like, files. Yeah, it's all streaming now. Yeah. The things that are, the new stuff that's here is stuff that I'm buying, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Right. I still believe in physical media. Yeah, I get it. Uh, I mean, last week, Apple took three films off their service or something. The Canadian rights went away, so people were losing the content that they'd already paid for to keep. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like yeah. that. This that's stuff not is, fair. This, as long as I have power and a player, these movies will work. Yeah. And that's the most important thing for me. And, you know, power, you could hook up a, a bicycle and do your own power, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Let's the get will, creative the here. The day will come. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I have built this little bunker. Yeah. And 
and filled it with movies and that like that black bookcase over there is criterion only wow Um, that's the advantage too of covering them all along that's incredible yeah that's the history of what do they call it important and contemporary world cinema classic and contemporary important world cinema that's you know if if everything else goes to hell i can lock myself in here with a bicycle and (laughs) you know i can always watch bicycle thief yeah right right what about um, videos do you have any of those left over i do yeah there's still a few what's just that you can't there's about 30 or 40 VHS tapes and stuff that was just never released in another medium. I still have about 200 laser discs over there. No kidding. Yeah, stuff that just might not come back. Yeah. Um, And the archiving, I mean, to bring it back to the the Shannon documentary, Mm -hmm. without those videotapes, we would have such... He had so much coverage. Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't have that understanding of him. I mean, the box sets of Larry Sanders and and Gary Shannon show are in there somewhere. Do you? Oh, Oh, yeah. They're amazing. That's incredible. Um, I haven't seen all of those. I really... I. Like, I caught bits at the time because we just didn't have yeah. access for whatever reason. No, I watched, I was watching them obsessively. I think in Toronto, it was carried, and Larry Sanders, I remember, was carried at like midnight on right. CBC. So I would, more often than not, I would be up anyway. But then they started airing them out of sequence or out of season or right. something. There was a delay between the U.S. broadcast and the Canadian broadcast. It was a nightmare. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's the fact that they're preserved now and available on disc with the with the incredible. DVD extras that that Chandling produced himself at, I mean that Shout Factory being willing to indulge him, they're they're doing incredible work with their archival yeah. materials, um, <clears throat> and they would have worked with Apatow on the Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared sets that they produced, which were also mm. terrific. I love Freaks and Geeks; it's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. And I think that all that stuff all comes from Chandling teaching Apatow to pay attention, right? To not just right. go for the funny. I mean, there's such a a world of difference between was it Heavyweights the movie he directed with his he either produced and wrote it or directed it as well maybe didn't direct it this is just a summer camp comedy with Ben Stiller that Apatow made between the Ben Stiller show and, and Larry Sanders okay. or right in the middle of it and it's just this generic 90s comedy for Disney that's designed and aimed at little kids and it's not trying for anything right. and I remember seeing it and being really really disappointed because I'd seen the Ben Stiller show and I knew what they were capable of yeah. I went in expecting, a, if not a satire, then at least something that acknowledged the genre that it's in and, and played with it. I and mean, it was just rote. Yeah. Still, it was funny, but there was nothing else in there. And then when he came back 10 years later with 40 Year Old Virgin, it's like, oh no, this is it. This yeah. is what we've been doing all along. Wow. And then we find out in the doc that Shandling helped shape the ending. Yeah. Which I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I mean, I, I had sort of the same. I sort of admired him from afar mm-hmm. of course because I didn't know him so very very far but I wasn't immersed in his comedy um, I just wanted to watch his documentary because I had so many friends that were impacted by it so and it's true it just has a it has a great voice yeah um, happy to have this record of him yeah uh, made by people I, and I don't know that I, I did notice there are thank yous in the credits to Joe Berlinger and Alex Gibney who are kind of heavy hitters in documentary world uh-huh. uh, Berlinger made the Paradise Lost films with Bruce Sanofsky and, and Brothers Keeper and a bunch of other stuff and Alex Gibney is basically a documentary machine now he just right. cranks them out and I assume Apatow consulted with them or maybe showed them early cuts oh, or something interesting. Yeah. yeah but none of their films has the warmth that this no, one no it's definitely like yeah a passion project I mean the fact that he left him his diaries. There's a level of trust that he knew he would do something. Yeah. And diaries that go back 
decades. Yeah. It's not just... I don't know who I'd leave my diaries to. Do you actually keep them? No. Yeah. I mean, my diaries are not great and quite boring, so I feel like people will be very disappointed <laughs> if they get past the to-do list that includes yeah. groceries and... Yeah, I don't, don't think Canadians produce... Maybe Leonard Cohen, but I don't think most of us would have the lives that justify the... The endless journaling. I mean, maybe. I don't I don't know about that. I think people have colorful lives in Canada. I just don't think my diaries had any kind of value. Yeah. Unless you like sketches of, like, I don't know, maybe landscape next to a grocery list. Sure. You know, it's that kind of extravagance. Yeah. But I to have, like, those diaries entrusted, that's a weight, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? I'd like you to have my diaries, and I know you're going to make a documentary yeah. about me, and now... This will die. this will come out somewhere after yeah. words where I have no control over. Yeah, because it is. It's him giving up control in a way that's really not something we ever see him do. Any totally. Time. But I think you need that. Like, I don't think you can run your own show without it being a control freak. Because hmm. he paid attention to details, and that's yeah. vital. Yeah, to the point where he was so obsessed with something that he would wander. I love that detail that they ended up shooting for pages and pages because the minute they called cut, he'd wander, wander away. away. And... Presumably, it was to deal with some other problem. They never really say where he went, where they found him. But I also think his brain, like, you know, when they were doing something in front of a live audience and he was still, like, working on bits, he's had... Yeah. And I think that's just... His brain was... And I, th- I don't know. Gosh, I don't know him at all. So uh, it's presumptuous of me to pretend I do. But, you know, like, when he went through the lawsuit, I think that just takes a chunk of your brain constantly. Yeah. Because can... it's sad. Like, I think there's a level of, you know... I don't know, um, betrayal and and sadness that he had lost that friend. I would think so. And that it started out as the um, the end of a, re- a different relationship, right? Because it was the it was the breakup with the set that triggered, according to the film anyway, that, that triggered the, the larger lawsuits when he started looking into what Gray was doing. Exactly. And so you lose everything. You yeah. lose your core personal relationship and then you lose the core supportive relationship with the manager who's supposed to have your back the whole time yeah and he's alone in a house that he built out of you know not out of spite but out of out of um a defense mechanism right and this is where he ends up i mean we're all complicated beings sure his is just exposed yeah and then he turned it into the last season of the show right the fact that he chose to steer into it yeah almost but it wasn't i remember watching later episodes of the um larry sanders show and thinking i don't know if it's funny like it got heavy mm-hmm. do you remember it got real heavy yeah, and it got yeah, dark yeah. and i think it's just because he was dealing with his actual life that was heavy and dark yeah well it was always a i mean it was always an angry show in a way because it had people being monstrous but it was, right. you know, Larry was indifferent at best as a character the right. first couple of seasons. You know, like that, that first moment we ever see him on the first episode of the show is he's just shutting down during a commercial break after chatting with a guest. And that's that was the moment that it tells you what kind of show it's going to be. I don't even remember who the guest was, but he's interviewing somebody and they go to commercial and then it switches out of the TV frame, out of video into film. Oh, yeah, and yeah, And he's yeah. just sitting absolutely still and the person sitting, the guest is saying, so, you know, what are you, what are you doing afterwards? And he's just... Was it Jim Larry's, Carrey? I don't think it was. Huh. Maybe it was. But he's shut down and staring dead ahead and not interacting at all. Yeah. And gradually, I think the point of the show is that that is who Larry is. Yeah. Like that there is nothing if he's not 
on camera. And so his attempts to build relationships are doomed and his attempts to trust are doomed yeah. because he will always pull out, pull back and pull out. Yeah. And even, you know, that one moment where he's alone with himself after the first time he quits the show, uh, at the end, I think it's season four, um, there's a there's a moment that stayed with me forever. He go he's talking about how he's going to retire. And he's going to a cabin and he tells he springs it on everybody and walks it away, walks away and tells Artie that's his plan. And then we cut to him in his cabin and he's muttering the introduction to the show to himself. And the last line of that season is, "And now a man who's made a huge fucking mistake." Right. And it's it says everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, where do you go from those successes? Like you can't you can't match them. Yeah. You've changed television yeah. twice in a row. Yeah, right. And now what? And now what? And now you're alone. You don't have the team that you had with you. You, I mean, you have your friends, but right. they're not working for you. So it's a different relationship. Right. And maybe that's the thing that he didn't have in, in What Planet Are You From? Is that he didn't have final say over anything. Right. He was just a player. Yeah. Yeah. And he had to abdicate that responsibility. Yeah. And that made it impossible to do the thing he wanted to do. But knowing that, like, he would, he, it surprised me that he didn't know himself well enough hmm. to not know that that was a pitfall. Yeah. And that's, like, that's it, though, right? He yeah. didn't know himself that well. Yeah. He, for all of his efforts to understand himself, and for the the genuinely powerful insights that he has in those journals that are deeper and more thoughtful than things I will ever come up I with. I know. I have to Well, say. they're truthful, right? Like, even... Like him saying, I hate Brad Gray in his journal. I would never write, I hate anybody in yeah. a journal. I would just never say it. And then he forgives him probably never really in person or anything. Right. But you know, he wrote that last piece before the pancreatitis yeah. surgery where he thought he was going to die. And he made peace with everybody. Yeah. And came out the other side and still couldn't find peace. Right, I mean, he was still agitating. Uh, this the the outtake footage of him with with Seinfeld from that episode of Comedians and Cars oh, getting yeah. coffee. Yeah, that's fascinating. He's, yeah, he's restless and uncomfortable, and he doesn't like not being in control. Yeah, with somebody he's known for ever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as I say, he's a complicated fellow, and and the balance is something that we're all searching for. But yeah. that's really it's a, it's a tricky one for sure. Yeah, I I do think, like in the in the final analysis that Apatow provides, I think we're supposed to take away that he lived the best version of his life that he could have. That he, I mean, aren't we all? He found a way. Right, we're just figuring it out. That's what we tell out. ourselves. I know. Well, we're I think doing it the best actually we happened can. for him. Yeah, but I think it actually happened for Shanley. I think what, that once, he's... once he figured out boxing somehow, that centered him. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, right, boxing. That yeah. weird final act of his life where he, yeah. he embraced something that was purely physical because that was the other thing that put him in the moment. Right. You know, like, this, this that... God, that sequence with Alec Baldwin, who yeah. is so clearly not coming from it in the same place at yeah. all, that, that fascinated me more than almost anything else in the movie, because we're seeing two completely different perspectives on the same event as it happens, and they're talking about a memory, yeah. and they perceive those things differently. And there's that moment where Baldwin just shuts off, and it's like, no, nope, we're talking too much, let's, let's, let's get back into the ring, and that's him chasing his moment. Right. Uh, while Shanling wants to figure out why they're having the moment in the first place. Yeah. That's yeah. a guy who knows stuff about himself. Not Baldwin. Yeah. Shanling. No, I, I know. Baldwin's... I mean, he's definitely, you know, he has a self-aware, uh, self-awareness, for sure. It's just where it stops. Yeah. It's interesting, you know? And yeah. then he does things like the, um, like the basketball game that they always used to have. Like, that's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
But it also makes me think of like, you know, like the kid, the kid that has like the coolest pool, so that all the people will come over because yeah. that's you know, wants his peeps around. That's the quality. He's yeah. still yeah. I mean, it's still his staff. It's still his crew. Yeah, they're in charge. He's in charge. Did you ever see him do live comedy? No, no, me neither. No, I never had the chance. I, I covered a couple of comedy festivals for the Star way back, but I never got to go to anything he did. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure he ever came to them. But um, I saw Carlin once. Oh yeah, what was yeah. that like? It was interesting. It was at that point where he it was like ninety two or ninety three. And wow. he, yeah, it was at the Forum in Ontario Place, if you can remember wow. that. Wow. That's a that's a deep cut now. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and he was at that point where he was sort of professionally angry. So everything was there was no the the whimsy had gone. Yeah. And he was just it was all about politics. It was after the Reagan Bush years. It was I think Clinton had no, he hadn't been elected yet. It was the su- yeah, it was the summer of ninety two. It was when the star went on strike, and I it was one of the couple of things that I I had tickets for, but I couldn't write about it because the star was on strike. Oh right. Yeah, so I just went as an audience member. I also think sometimes in like comedy, people start out with personas that they have to then adopt because it's part of their thing. It's yeah. part of their moneymaker. So if you start out being a curmudgeon, you know, stand up, you're going to become a curmudgeon. That's just the way it goes. Yeah. That's where the material comes from. Right? Yeah. Like you have to write into it. Yeah, careful what it. you wish for. Then you're like, you're one man show about being a curmudgeon. Nobody likes you. Yeah. He was, it, Carlin was fascinating because he, he had this incredible facility for rattling off lists of things that bothered him. He would do it. Just that, random? Uh, no, I mean, they're clearly rehearsed, but he was, he made it feel live. Right. And electric. Right. But he would do this year after year and he would maybe change the list a little bit, but, um, you, you, I mean, you know the, you must know the bit about uh, where he starts. The, I think the first time he really started playing with language was when he was talking about um, people getting on the plane. That was like I don't this remind whole me, thing I way know. back in the seventies. It yeah. was, um, uh, it was about the absurdity of. Could we play of, a clip? <laughs> Somebody play I must, a clip. I must have it here. <laughs> but the the bit was that he uh, he was upset by he was offended fundamentally offended by the the linguistic convolutions, the acrobatics that were required to make you feel relaxed when you get on an airplane. Right. Because um, you're saying, like, we're going to get on the plane. It's like, fuck you, I'm getting in. That was, it was all about that. Right. And, you know, in the event of. And right. All things. Oh, yeah. And he just. Such a smart. Line by line through that speech. He yeah. Just, he, would, he was fascinating. Uh, and, and so that evolved into this thing where he would just lay out for five or six minutes a list of it was people I can do without originally right. just types of people and then it just evolved into other things and and watching that was like watching a jazz musician find the groove yeah it was good comedy is like jazz for sure yeah yeah you have to like, yeah it's it's yes and at its most basic core right like yeah. you have to be willing to go wherever the moment takes you yeah um but Shandling seems like he was so conscious of his moment like he was living in it in in that present moment all the time. Yeah. To watch him negotiate his way out of it to make a joke is fascinating. Just the, those beats he has in, in nightclubs, the stuff that we see of him. Yeah. Playing to that are all truthful, right? That he's just going through those notes and notes of his like the scribbles. Yeah. And they're all based on some sort of truth in his heart, which yeah. everybody leans towards and go, "What? Well, tell me more." And then yeah. Yeah. Or the bit on the Larry Sanders set where he's ranting to himself quietly about how he wants to come back in his next life as a dog. I know, and cut out the middle, man. Yeah. That was so funny. And that stuck cl- with me. He's clearly furious, right? But yeah. he, there's a moment at the end of it where he realizes he's in front of an audience and has to find a button. 
and you know, like, what is? Oh, like my balls less. Yeah. And then the room comes back, and he gets them. They laugh, and it's just like that's. I don't know what that is. Yeah, that's, that's like, like idiot savant. Like yeah. that's like yeah, his brain's always functioning on a comedic level. Yeah, and he la- like it's a triple axle. He sticks it. He he comes down yeah. with, with a joke that comes out of nowhere. Right. From this free association anger that he's feeling. I mean, I, I know I know comedians like that. They're always working, but I find like nowadays it's more. I don't know, more introspection and less just joke telling, mm-hmm. not less bits. Yeah. Which I think is where a lot of comedians are finding their comedy from now. Yeah. Stories and this happened to me. So Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the last time I saw someone who didn't do any of that was Mark Little. Yeah. Who... Yeah, he's got a different brain for that, for sure. Yeah. I saw him at Comedy Bar a couple of years ago now. I think he might have been opening for James Adomian. And he pulverized... I've never seen a performance like that. It might be the hardest thing I've ever laughed at. He came out with just um, like a, a dance track, like a club yeah. track, and and screamed his name into it over and over and over again and said nothing else for nine minutes. Right. He didn't stop. And there was this wildness that crept in after about six minutes where he realized he could keep going. Yeah. And we were in there with him. Like it was just... It was... He, he ended up doing other material afterwards. Um, but... I've never seen anything like that, and the, it was yeah. He's got a really unique brain for yeah, sure. It was so risky and so utterly at the at the will of the audience. Like right. If we'd stopped laughing, I think he would have doubled down. But because we were with him, he could have like he could just loop around and have fun with it. Yeah, him. yeah. It's when it's the bravery of when you've lost your audience to keep going anyway. Yeah. And I've seen that too, where I'm like, wow, you did not give up on your bit. <laughs> I'm in a huge admiration about that too. Yeah, I, that's that's my that's the thing that's kept me from ever thinking about it seriously because I just I don't know that I would have the confidence to push through. There was someone I think I don't know if it's confidence. I think it's survival. Right. I think that you're on stage and you're like, well, no one's gonna come and rescue me, so I'm gonna do something else. And you just pull out all stops, pull out pull out all comedy stops. Yeah. Has it ever happened to you? Oh, never, never. I always have something funny to say. That's a lie. That's a lie. Uh, yeah, I then... But you know what? In improv, it's different. Like, stand-up, you're on your own. Right. Improv, you know, you open a drawer and pull out something that will keep you grounded in the scene, so sure, it's okay. Yeah. But, yeah, there's tons. You just hope that your partners on stage will see the panic look on your face and come and help you. Yeah. And I guess you get used to looking for it, too, right? I mean, what, the, the... The panic look. The Paul... Just, oh, yeah. save other people. Yeah, I mean, that's a good troop. If you have crappy troops, and the guy's like, let's make her stand out there for a while and suffer. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you should, you, you know, you read people. You can see it as an audience member. You can see it in stand-up mm-hmm. where they're like, oh, they've lost their groove and or they've, they're on it. It's like it's surfing it's, or jazz, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and Gary Shandling was always writing. Always. Like, I'm not always writing. I'm always clocking things. I'll clock like a funny person that I meet or a character or like you know I was on the phone with some customer support and it, her vocal her vocal habits were so ridiculous that I was like there has to she was driving me crazy and I said there has to be something good out of this phone call because it's making me lose my mind and uh, it was her vocal range I'd say she'd say what's your customer number I'd say uh, one, two, three, four. No, no, that's not here. Okay, well, maybe it's under my email. It's Sneakus. Uh, no, no. Every single one is no, and she couldn't find it. I'm like, I, at the end, I was like, I have to go. 
I don't know what else to do here. I'm going to call back. Call back. Somebody else did it. Yeah. Yeah. That's... And that's my customer service story. But that is some... Yeah, you're right. You've mined it. You've harvested it for yeah. something. Yeah. But some people are always like, you know, folks like Mark Little, um, who was I talking to the other day, jo- Jessica Holmes, she's always writing down bits because yeah. she's always honing her stand-up and yeah, like yeah. him. Like those kind of manic pieces of paper that somehow, like, he figured it out so he could put them on stage in yeah. a really intelligent way. It's a gift. Yeah, and he does say that, right? At one point he says that, you know, like, I take all of this and I make it two pages that I take yeah. it with me. So he's, he, I, I think, you know, you see a sheaf of papers, that's what a sheaf looks like to you. Yeah, as opposed right. to a ream, right? The A ream is the box that you get the paper in and the sheaf is what happens after you've waved it around. Right. And he's just, he does look like there's no... There's no focus. There's no... When he's holding that much paper, and then you gradually... We... Like, Apatow shows us how to interpret it, because he's showing us where the little stars go, and right. what the circles mean, and how that all works. And then we we finally... I mean, it takes three and a half hours to pay off, but then you see his script for Over the Hedge in that one shot, where they he's annotated it and done all those weird little oh, things Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And just like, oh, that's how it works. Yeah. That's how that works. Yeah. Um, but like I used to, if I saw a comedian with notes, I'd be like, mm, "Hack." Yeah. But now I'm like, I get it. Like they're just working through their bits. They're figuring things out. And yeah. I saw somebody once with a piece of paper that they left on stage at the Winter Garden, fifteen, maybe twenty years ago now, and it was just like pizza camp, just words. Yeah. No, no bits, no jokes, just the thing that would vault them into the next bit. Right. And like it was, pizza camp? That's pizza a camp is bit. another That's thing. That's a very funny bit. Yeah. Yeah. But it was it was really it was incredibly educational because I just I would have been in my early thirties or something. I had my concepts of comedy and it's like, no, okay, that's somebody else that's doing another a completely different thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then some people come out we saw Jeff Garland. Yeah. Um and he had nothing. He just came out. He was like, hey, I got nothing. So what are you doing? Yeah. And just like f- had this great bit. He was just so funny. But it's all based on talking to people. He probably had his closer. But other than that, he was just shooting yeah. the shit with people. Who did I see? Oh, Bronger. Matt Bronger. Oh, yeah. Uh, at Comedy Bar told a story. Um, it was this great, bizarre story about accidentally putting his hand in someone else's mouth. Uh, <laughs> gesturing and having oh, it go yeah, right yeah, into yeah. someone's awesome. face. Yeah. And he had this re- he had this refrain for it to to explain his own horror uh, which is that my hand my hand is in his mouth and head yeah and that's so it was funny. so beautiful that's so great and he did the podcast afterwards after his first set so I we were on the way to the to the little tiny green room where we recorded it I was asking how did you hit on mouth and head because that's so pure and it's such a great way of explaining it and he said it'll probably be different next time I just that's what it sounded like Right. In the moment. And it's like... Right. So I think, like, everybody approaches that craft differently, right? So some people would hone that until it... If you missed a syllable, the joke didn't work. Yeah, because mouth and head, I still remember it now because it conveys the yeah. sheer horror, right? Yeah, like, right. It's not just in, in his head. mouth, it's in his head. And he, he got it across so, like, bang, bang. Perfectly. Just beautifully executed. And then the next set would be a different bit. And yeah. I would love to see that again and see how it changed yeah, or how, yeah, yeah. like... The, because then, you know the chemistry in the room changes and that bit never works again. Yeah. yeah. I it's... understudied, at Second City, I understudied um, Carolyn Taylor, Taylor yeah. from Baroness. Oh, yeah. And she's, like, a very unique comedian. Like, there were certain bits that she would do, like the way she would 
look at the audience or the way she would laugh or like the way she delivered a word and I could never get it. I could never get it. I would mm-hmm. try to impersonate her to a T with rhythm and everything and I just was I just am not Carolyn Taylor. So that's you know, that's yeah, also yeah. something you have to let go of when you're you know, understudying but Is it the presence? Chemistry. Is it electricity? Is it timing? I I don't know. It's a nuance. It's like the ownership. I mean she'd written the material, right? So I was just her understudy, so mm. maybe it's the ownership of material. Um I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're trying so hard to replicate it, you're going to miss whatever you can make authentic in it. Yeah, or maybe, like, there there are things at Second City, like, you try to, when you're the understudy, your job is just to replicate it as best as possible so sure. it doesn't screw up the rest of the show. Right. But there's some things you're like, I gotta just make this my own. It's not going to work if I try to be her. Yeah. Um, but it's tricky. Yeah, I have, I have seen... I've seen... Like definitive performances from people who like Paul Lee on uh, In Kim's Convenience yeah. on the show is a different appa than he was on stage, uh, and it's jarring because yeah. I came to the show first and caught up to the show to the the TV stage show. show later. Oh, so you saw the TV I show? I saw the before. TV show first. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I just um, you know never could get to it. Yeah. Basically, don't cover theater, so yeah. I wasn't able to. And then when it went back to Soul Pepper for the last time, and I knew it was going to be the last time, I, w- I made a point of going to see it. Right. And I was shocked at how much rage is in that character and how much bottled anger he carries in all of those scenes and we talked about it later and he said yeah no that i mean my instagram handle is angry apple you never noticed and right like, yeah, i know i thought about that i That's thought it tied yeah because i thought it tied into his twitter handle as bitter asian dude which was a joke about how he's bitter because there are no roles for asian actors right and i said well i just assumed it's like no no the original apple was not a, like he's they're hinting at it in the show. They talk about his angry past. Right. And because it's a sitcom, it can't deal with those issues. Right. And they found a really new, a really interesting way to make it a new show. And I think the show's great. Yeah. But it was, he said, like, it wasn't just me. He said a lot of people are really surprised when they yeah, come see the stage show. And they, you know, like, they're scared of me. Right. And Paul is, like, the, the warmest, friendliest oh my guy. God. And after the show at the talkback, people were, like, looking at him sideways because of what they'd seen in that. Interesting. Yeah. And that's that's simply a matter of the difference in context of the, of the appas that you know and the yeah. appa that you're seeing in the, in the stage show. So I wonder how people who saw the show first feel about the television production. Right. I mean, I saw the show first, but I accept there's a change in mm-hmm. the next generation. Um, but it is interesting, like, the on-stage or on-camera personas versus in-life personas, like somebody like Gary Shanley, who really blurred that line yeah right there wasn't much difference between him off and on camera yeah i mean it's intentional from the get-go right yeah because if you i guess if you start a stand-up and your persona is neurotic jewish comedian in the 70s you're going to be that right fully right yeah um and then we what he what he was on it's gary shandling show is so yeah it had to be him it had to be real because that was his whole point yeah uh, the impossibility of making a fun sitcom about someone who's human and real and flawed. Totally. And then the insight that who who gets credit for it? Was it Peter Tolan? Somebody said like said you know, like the 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 thing in the in the doc where he says I thought he was going to fire me for telling him that the problem with its Gary Shandling show is that you're up you're acting opposite puppets that you they have no inner lives. Right. Oh yeah. And that inspired Larry Sanders. And it's such a simple insight. But again, he spent four years on the show not getting that, right? Like, he missed stuff about himself and about what he was doing creatively. Yeah, I as we, we do. all do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't help it. 
but for we'll some, catch it the next time. Yeah, and he did, yeah. right? Like that's what the Larry Sanders show is. It's the evolution of that concept of being as real as possible. He just changed his name. Yeah. Yeah. What a smart man. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating, and I'm so glad you picked it because it let me spend that four and a half hours just thinking about it. I could have spent another four and a half hours. I was like captivated. I wanted more and more and more. I wanted all the insight to his brain and insight to the business and you know it makes you want to step up your game yeah i hope the blu-ray comes with plenty of deleted stuff I'm oh just, yeah I can't imagine what apatel wanted to keep and didn't that's always the question you want to ask with a documentary this big yeah it's like what was the last thing you cut yeah how what was the hardest thing yeah, to cut? how much did it hurt to yeah. give up the last five minutes yeah i just feel like he like you know everybody's got two sides so i just feel like apatel didn't want to show that the dark side yeah it's hinted at enough that it's a little it's, yeah. It's we're never not aware of it, but yeah, yeah, it, it definitely pulls back from some of the darker things. Yeah, which I get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we see them in his. We see them in his diaries. We see them in his journals. Yeah, there's that moment towards the, towards the end of the film where his handwriting is clearly wobblier than it was. Oh, yeah, a couple of zooms where it's just you can see the shaky pen uh, penmanship. Right, it's probably just before the pancreatitis surgery, but right. just the idea that he was still committed to taking stock of himself at that point yeah you know what is it you you might live three days you might live three years but you'll be living the simplest thing the perspective yeah i mean what a legacy too right yeah you look around this office you think about how much effort and how much you know blood sweat and tears went into each one of these projects yeah i try to think about that i mean that's the other thing as a as a critic that I mean, I already said it. Nobody ever sets out to make a bad film consciously. I mean, people set out to make cheap no. films or passable films. But, but like Paddington. Oh. Somebody put a lot of, like, their heart into that. Yeah. I, Kate and I were just talking about it this morning because she's finally seen the first one, hasn't seen the second one yet. And they are just... Have you seen them? I have not. They are... Uh, they are fucking magic. Really? They are absolutely... Wow. I, I cried at both of them. I'm going to put that on monster. my list. I'm a cold soulless oh, monster. Oh, no, that's obvious. No, yeah, no, this has been uh, a nightmare to talk to you. Yeah. But it is, it is fascinating to see something that manages to come out the other end out of, you know, scripting and production and editing and release to be a singular achievement. Yeah. And Shanling did that with the two shows and... and the Paddington movies do it with the Paddington character. They somehow take this impossibility of making a non-cynical movie for a cynical age. Right. And remind you what it is to be kind and giving and, and open. And, you know, that was... It's weird that you would pick the Paddington movies, but those are that was Shanling's mission, right? Like, yeah. still be good. Still be the best version of you right. that you can be. Yeah. And presumably eat marmalade sandwiches. Right. Oh, God. Because that's a goal for us all. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also have to recognize the meticulousness of the alphabet, <laughs> alphabetized. Yeah, if you don't do it, you'll never find anything. That's no, it's basically true. it. It's a survival tactic. It's I mean, true. It's, it's the one time my OCD makes sense because I can tell you where everything is. How many do you have? That I don't know. I've lost count, but it's thousands. I mean, easily. Because I don't know if you noticed, but behind the Blu rays are DVDs. I get it. Also alphabetized. Of course. And more of them. And also, also, over there are all the box sets for TV. I know! The, well, the franchises are chronologically ordered because I am insane. Wow. So it's the only way I can negotiate it. I mean, everything. it does make me want to start knocking on your door when I need to get 
like the full box set that I can't see on Netflix. You want to borrow it. That's the other thing, right? Netflix won't always have the stuff they have now, and they won't have the extras, and yeah. But like, I'm writing a show right now uh, that's in development for CBC, with CBC, and it's a 30 Rock, and I've watched all the 30 Rock, but sometimes you're like, ah, oh, what's that one? I want to get like a reminder of that one, and it's nowhere to be found. Yeah, but if they were on Netflix or iTunes, that would be the best way, right? That would so be the just best. Well, except sometimes you're without... Wi-Fi. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Then what the hell are we going to do? Yeah. You know? I don't know how to function, no. honestly, at this point, without access. It's and that's, pretty again, tricky. that's why those are all still here. Because yeah. it may take an extra two minutes to come downstairs and get the disc and put it in the player, but I know it's here. Yeah. Um, Paul Schrader told me once, uh, we were having this conversation about um, digital versus uh, like film, literally film, yeah. and how we got to a point where... He said it's gotten now, and he's 70, and he said it's gotten to the point where if I want to watch a scene from 2001, I will buy it on iTunes or rent it on iTunes rather than get up and walk to the other side of my office and get oh the Blu-ray. Oh, my God. And it's like, why would you do that? And he said, well, I mean, baseline, I can afford it. Right. It's two bucks. It's nothing. And it's easier. What's your time worth? Yeah. And I guess... That's very funny. If you're in this, if, if, if he is in this place of instant gratification, the kids today, like that generation Insane. is never going to yeah. understand rewinding videotapes. Like that's, no. there are things that my nieces who've never, uh, I, I saw one of my nieces yesterday and she's like, she's never had to rewind a tape. She's never had to wait for something right. ever. All she's of those never things. had to rewind anything. Yeah. YouTube is there for her. If she wants to see something, she can see it instantly. It's... The worst for her is just the little disc that just goes around and yeah. around. Then she's like, buffering. Oh, can you imagine? I have to wait for buffering. What's the world coming to? Yeah. It's a whole different, you know, I mean, really just, there's so, there are so many advantages to having stuff at, at your fingertips. And now the idea that, you know, like the, the Gary Shanley documentary is on HBO Go yeah. or TMN Go and anyone anywhere can sit down and watch four and a half hours of this man's life encapsulated as a reference point for whatever they're working on. Yeah. That's fantastic. It's documents. Everything's been documented. Yeah, yeah. It's invaluable. And it's part of the technological age, right? Because the video cameras were there when he was coming up and he could record all this stuff. Think about the next generation, all the stuff that'll be available. Yeah. Oh, God. It'll be DNA linked. You can watch anything yeah, right. based on you specifically. <laughs> Just scrape a little bit of your skin cells into this and you yeah. find out all the footage that you have your whole life. Exactly. This was on a surveillance camera that one time you were in yes. Thailand. Oh my God. That's a movie. Yes. <laughs> no, it's not. That's an idea. Uh, I don't know. Something Sometimes has to happen, movies right? come from an idea. It's Gattaca. It's already been done. <laughs> well, is, that's my biggest problem. You just like launched a movie, wrote it, and then had it canceled in the same it. sentence. Yeah, that's yeah. my biggest problem. I smothered my own ideas yeah. by going, well, I can think of five other times that's happened. Well, I have a friend that writes for The Simpsons. And oh my God, that must be... It's insane, right? Yeah. How, how many years is that? 30? 30, 31, yeah. And he said like, there's writers that come in, they're like, oh, okay, here's a storyline idea. And they'll be like... Uh, season six yeah. episode that that already happened. Oh, okay. What about this season four episode? This that are, so there's yeah. no new ideas. Like how do they? That's the, why they have to keep so topical. Yeah, and the writers would presumably have grown up on The Simpsons and thus internalized it and not know they've internalized it. Yeah, That's even right. More fascinating. Like, right. Uh, I think it was Groening who said that if you if you edit it properly, you could get Citizen Kane out of The Simpsons. Like shot for shot, you could actually assemble Citizen That's Kane because they've referenced it so many times. Yeah, and I believe them. I believe that at this point. That's unbelievable. What a smart group of people. Yeah, and James Brooks shows up in, in the Shannon documentary yeah, right. to be thoughtful and and, and sweet. And, That's and, just it. Yeah. Judd Apatow really like, pulled beautiful 
um, commentary from people. It's yeah. really lovely. And for the most part, these are all people who've done great work on their own too, right? Like there aren't a couple, there aren't that many hacks in that universe. No, and there are a couple of people that I'm not terribly fond of necessarily as as comics, but yeah. they're still speaking thoughtfully yeah. and emotionally. Yeah, like they're not half-assing this. this no, is something that's real. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. The Jeffrey Tambor question is fascinating to me. Actually, before we segue out of of Larry Sanders, yeah. I just that I wanted to ask you about that. Given that he has kind of been outed as, if not a a monster, then at least an asshole, um, with you know making Jessica Walter cry on. Yeah. I, I still think Hank Kingsley works because they found something in Tambor, because Shandling saw something in Tambor that Tambor didn't know he had. Okay. Like that, that monstrousness, that, yeah. that self-absorption. And it also... I mean, the movie doesn't... Apatow in the documentary doesn't dig into it enough, but I, I got the feeling that that character, more than anything else, is the reflection of his mother that he never put on screen. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Um... Does that resonate at all, or am I just pulling it out of it? The mother thing? Yeah. I hadn't—I honestly have never thought about that. I mean, I watched him, and I thought the same thing. Like, I could see, like, the Hank character balancing on, you know, being a monster to, mm. to an extent, the way he talked to people. And um, I don't know, like, as an actor, if you're in a scene with somebody, you can feel when it becomes real. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you can just feel when it's personal and when it's not, and... Um, yeah, I just don't, I, I have a lot, I, I don't have a lot of patience for lack of respect. And I think that that guy's struggling with probably self-respect and respect for others. And so mm. it's, uh, it's disappointing. That's what it is. Cause I had, you know, I thought as a comedian, as a, as an actor, you have admiration. And then when he does what he does, you know, did on Arrested Development, it, it does lose the shine of my admiration for him because I'm just disappointed yeah yeah I, my takeaway was that was from Hank was that his arrogance is a compensation for his weakness of course because Hank is spineless and a worm and, and yeah. an opportunistic lout yeah uh, but I always assumed that Tambor knew that and was playing it and now I'm not so sure no that's I think that's I part so of him like yeah some essential quality that comes out because Shandling saw it. Yeah, maybe. Whether Tambor knew it or not. I don't know. That's an interesting question. I don't yeah. know if I didn't know the answer to that. Yeah, and I don't. I don't mean to box you into, uh, you know, having a, a defining opinion on Jeffrey Tambor as a person, but the characters of Hank Kingsley, with what I like, with what we now know about Shandling's relationship with his mother, I just find that, you know, like, did he find in Tambor someone who mirrored it somehow right. and that's what attracted him to it or was it the character before the actor well I mean we love a flawed character right and Hank was definitely a flawed yeah. character that went from insecurity to rage and flip flop but based on it's all based on fear so I'll watch that forever because I think it's such a fascinating balance but it does like knowing him and his his behavior on set as a person you just go ah you know what there's a lot of really talented people that are also kind yeah those are the ones that, I mean, I, those are the ones I'm drawn to, I think, whether I know who they are or not. I, right. I like to think that that's the thing, the generosity of You like spirit. to think so, but then you're like, oh, did you hear of so-and-so, and yeah. they're not, and you're like, no! Yeah, you learn people can fake it. That's yeah. the worst part. Oh, they are good actors. But then I'm so disappointed in myself. I'm like, oh, Naomi, you really had no judge <laughs> of that character whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. It's a weird new place we're in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's good, because in the end, we'll see everything more clearly, but... I think right now we're in that convulsive, ugly stage where 
every like there's so many more shoes waiting to drop and we're just going to keep getting stepped on yeah it's a flawed metaphor but you see what i'm going I see for where you, i see where you went there but but to that end um the interpretation of of shanling's work and everything else that kind of brings us to the closing question of this podcast which is is there anything from if not the zen diaries of gary shanling then shanling himself that you find yourself absorbing or borrowing or stealing or incorporating into your own creative dna oh um you know it's mostly just a reminder of like the pursuit of of truth in your comedy and um i think i'm always pursuing that anyway it's my favorite thing to do you know when we're doing improv or when you know to find the truth of whatever character i'm playing is let you know as outlandish as they are to find out what they're the heart is mm. so that was a great reminder for me um it's also like a kick in the butt saying like you gotta work harder you gotta don't stop creating and then i also go oh but also i'm i have a great husband and i really like spending time with him so i have a good balance of it all and i wouldn't give that up to create you know i'm um you know when he said like he said something about wanting to share his life with somebody and i'm like oh man I got to share my life with this, the greatest guy in the world. So I'm really, I really feel lucky about that. Yeah. Not to hashtag bless you too much, but hashtag blessed. It's nice to be happy. Yeah. I mean, I think that's my takeaway from Shanling is that he couldn't allow himself to, for, for all the self-knowledge he, he struggled with. Yeah. He couldn't allow himself to be himself with someone else in the end. Yeah. And his weird yeah. little affirmation at one point that somewhere out there there's a woman for you who will get you. And it's like, there were lots of women. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is sad. But you just... Yeah. He couldn't get outside himself long enough to find someone else who could get outside of him. Yeah. Get into him. It's also like, what is it all about, Alfie? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I love my job so much and I love that I get to do comedy and... Um, it's honestly I I'm, I feel really lucky but at the end of the day I'm really lucky because I found this guy and I think that's at the at the balance of it all you know somebody said you can have you can have it all but you can't have it all at the same time so you have to just make sure you're walking yeah. this fine line of like oh my career's doing okay but my relationship's not oh my relationship's doing oh my career's falling but it's just constant teeter-totter yeah but you can I don't know that that's true, though. You can have it all if you decide that that's what you want. If the thing, if the, you can, if the structures in your life are, are arranged in such a way that you can be content. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I have a career. I'm happily married. Yeah. I feel like I do have it all. Yeah. I mean, that might mean I mean, that I think a rock the is about to fall your, in my head. But no, 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 no. Within, I just think the, the definition of your success maybe yeah, changes. Exactly. Within the within the confines of my life as it is, I'm. I'm really quite happy. Yeah. And does that mean I have settled for what I'm in? And I'm not asking in an accusatory fashion. I just mean, like, in the larger view, does that mean I'm happy where I am and don't want to go any further? Or does that mean that this is what happiness looks like and I just figured it out? I think like, the I, latter. I hope so. I think so, because I think we pursue our dreams and our goals and our idea of what success is. And then gradually as we age and we get kicks in the ass like cancer kicks in the ass, yeah. then you sort of go, wait a second, what's it really all about? And you balance it up. And so, you know, yeah, I think you can have have it all in your own mind. Yeah. So that's what's more most important. Yeah, I mean, like, the worst thing I can say about my life is that my dog is kind of a dick, and, you know... I mean, that guy... You haven't even met him. No. 
a monster. Don't pretend like it's okay. My thanks to Naomi Snickers, who you can see in Mr. D, airing its last season on CBC Wednesdays at 9 p.m., and you can hear goofing around with her husband, Matt Barham, and special guests on their improv podcast, The Barham and Snickers Podcast, every other week. Their new show, Someone Stole Something, will launch in January, and Naomi's excellent interview podcast, Firecracker Department, returns for a new season in February. Thanks also to Ingrid Hamilton. She knows what she did. You can find Naomi on Twitter at Snickers, just Snickers, and you can find the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling on HBO Go and iTunes in the U.S., and on Crave in Canada. The iTunes version has additional material that is definitely worth your time. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, it would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Even 200 episodes later, which, seriously, thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.